Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen, if you dare. Just how extreme can a poltergeist haunting get? How blatant can an entity be that it's a demon and not the ghost of a dead person? Would you live in a house where there had been a mass murder? Would those deaths forever influence the house? I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the deep, dark, haunted swamps of Louisiana, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my terrifying world. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story, which is volume one of the Gravedigger series. The Gravediggers are a failing punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of dark, evil, nasty creatures of the night. It's horror, it's comedy, it's everything in one super entertaining series. It's a six-part series. Volumes one through three are already out, and volume four is coming very soon. So read one through three so you're up to date. I'm continuing the trend of doing both the video and audio version of 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore, so you can choose to listen or to watch. I hope you're enjoying it, and I'm going to have to start removing the 15 minutes part, as I mentioned, because I'm going over 15 minutes. So, there's so many interesting poltergeist cases on this season of Fangs and Folklore. I could go on and on, but I don't want to become laborious about it, so I'm going to do one or two more poltergeist hauntings, then we'll move on to another topic. The one I've chosen for this episode is easily the most famous one in the U.S., the most famous poltergeist haunting ever in the USA. There have been books, several movies about it. Just about anyone remotely interested in horror and the paranormal knows about it. That's right, friends. I'm talking about the Amityville poltergeist haunting, uh, known often or otherwise as the Amityville Horror, after the title of a book and a film about it. I want to briefly mention again that since this haunting took place in the 1970s, The photos we have of it are not great. In fact, most are black and white. So apologies to begin with, but that's 1970s technology. The house is iconic. You've almost certainly seen it before. This Dutch colonial style house with a gambrel roof. The two top windows look like eyes staring down at you. The address is 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, Long Island, New York. Like the Smurl house in the last episode, Google Earth has blurred out this house uh, to protect the identity and the privacy of the people living there now. As I understand it, uh, one of the families who've lived there since this incident changed the address from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108 Ocean Avenue to try to discourage people who drive by because, as they say, people knock on the door all the time. People are always in the yard taking pictures. It must be absolutely maddening to live there. So uh, if you do live in the area, don't go harass the people living there now. The house, by the way, was built in 1927. I'll say from the start that there are two distinct stories in this case. The first story is the one you've heard, probably, the the story of a poltergeist haunting or infestation. 
The second story is the story of an elaborate hoax or a false narrative. Either way, it's a very complicated case with mountains of details and evidence that I, your faithful host, have sorted through and done the hard work, so you can just sit back, listen, or watch, and enjoy. The whole story begins, for our purposes, with the family that lived in the house before the, the poltergeist incident. That was the DeFeo family, consisting of sev uh, seven members. Ronald Sr., the father, his wife Louise, Ronald DeFeo Jr., the son, whose nickname was Butch, and the other children, Dawn, daughter, Allison, daughter, Mark and John, two, son, two other sons. The family was originally from Brooklyn, and Louise's family owned a car dealership and was somehow connected to the mafia. And then the family moved to Amityville, Long Island, and named the house High Hopes for their hopes for the future. They wanted to get kind of a fresh start. Both Ronald Sr. and Ronald Jr. worked at Louise's family's car dealership. Again, the family was associated with the mafia. By all accounts, Butch, Ronald Jr., was lazy, contrary, showed up for work only when he wanted to, bragged about since his family owned the dealership, they couldn't fire him, he could do anything he wanted. And even when he worked, he was known to be belligerent and sometimes violent. Ronald Sr., the father, was allegedly very abusive to his family, took most of the psychological and physical abuse out on Butch, also on Don, being a close second to Butch, uh, being the one to receive the abuse. Butch was also bullied and beaten up frequently at school. Butch was, around the time of this incident, a heroin addict and a raving alcoholic. He was frequently violent, suffered from mental illness, and lots of memory loss, too. So, about 3.15 a.m. on the morning of November 17, 1974, the entire DeFeo family, except for Ronald Jr. Butch, was murdered in their beds. The entire family. All six other members. The day before this, Butch had told people that he was annoyed because no one at the house would answer the phone, all the cars were there, they wouldn't open the door. And the day of the morning of the killings, in other words, after the killings, Butch was at Henry's Bar, a place he frequented, local bar. Around 6 p.m., he told people he was going back to the house to break in through a window to see what was going on. He returned to the bar around 6.30 p.m., acting frantic, asking people to go to the house with him because he thought his parents had been shot. So he gets a few friends, they follow him, and they discover the grisly truth that the entire family had been shot. The police arrived, determined that all six members of the DeFeo family, except, of course, Butch, had been shot while in bed, while they were lying in bed. There was some evidence that one or two of them had begun to turn, maybe after hearing the shot or hearing something, right when they were shot. But all of them had seemed to mostly just remain in bed, even after hearing several loud gunshots from a rifle. So that's odd to begin with. If you've ever heard a gun fire in real life, not in the movies, guns are really, really loud. <laughs> They'll absolutely wake up a house. And to shorten the complicated tale, Butch eventually uh, confessed to the murders. There are hints of police brutality, torture even to extract a confession that the police department had some allegations against it at the time. But he was found guilty, sentenced to six sentences, each 25 years to life, one sentence for each victim. Uh, over the years, Butch has changed his story many times. He, uh, uh, people who studied the case believe he could not have acted alone. Uh, one, one reason being because no one got out of bed when they heard the gunshots. Some believe that one or two of his friends helped him. Some even believe that his sister Dawn shot the other kids while Butch shot the parents, that Butch had only intended to kill his parents. And when he found Dawn had shot the other kids, he said, what the, you know, what the hell did you do? She says, uh, there's no point in letting them live either. They're just going to tell on us. 
and Butch, realizing what she had done, shot her in the head. But whatever went down, Butch was definitely the center of it. And one of Butch's stories that is most relevant to our purposes here is that he claimed to have heard demonic voices whispering to him in the house, telling him to kill his family. He also claims that a female demon, all in black, handed him the rifle. But whatever happened that night, Butch was certainly majorly behind it. We'll never know the full details because Butch DeFeo died in prison on March 12, 2021. The next part of the story comes on December 18, 1975, a little over a year later. Another family, the Lutzes, purchased the house at $80,000, which was a huge discount. Apparently, the real estate agent showed them the house. They loved it. Then she said, now you need to know there, there were mass murders here. Can you live in a house like that? They talked it over. They said, yeah, we can live here. We can deal with that because it's uh, the house, you know, is, is really was large and lovely. Um, Dutch colonial. Uh, it's it's a, a lot of square footage and has a swimming pool, a boathouse. It's on a canal that leads to the sea in a really charming neighborhood. So they said, yeah, hell, we'll take it, you know, at that price. So the Lutz family included the father, George, his wife, Kathy, the children, Missy, Daniel, and Christopher, who were from Kathy's previous marriage. So we have George, Kathy, Missy, Daniel, Christopher. I want to note that George, the father, sometimes dabbled in the occult and in black magic and even in Satanism. He had tried uh, a couple of times to summon demons or to summon supernatural creatures. It was allegedly just kind of a hobby. He wasn't like a wizard, but it was real. And I've told you before that poltergeists choose families often, if not usually, because of this. Some poltergeist hauntings seem to happen to families for no apparent reason, kind of random. But if you delve into a family's history very frequently, you will find that someone, at least one member, had engaged in some sort of occult activity, even something as, uh, as seemingly as simple as using the Ouija board, right? Kathy, was, uh, Kathy sorry, he was Catholic, had asked the priest, Father Ralph Pecoraro, to stop by and bless the house when they were moving in. Pretty, you know, common thing to do for Catholics. When a Catholic priest blesses a house, he'll walk into every room, he'll sprinkle holy water in each room while reciting a verse, uh, passage from the Gospels. He'll make the sign of the cross and then say a short prayer, asking God to bless the house. Here is the priest's account of his walk through the house while blessing it. Quote, I was blessing the sewing room. It was cold. It was really cold in there. I'm like, well, gee, this is peculiar because it was a lovely day out and it was winter, yes, but it didn't account for that kind of coldness. I was also sprinkling holy water and I heard a rather deep voice behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face. I felt somebody slap me and there was nobody there, close quote. So that's what the priest claimed when he blessed the house. After Father, uh, Father Picararo's visit, blisters appeared on his hands as well. He called the Lutzes to warn them not to go into that room, but the phone call was drowned out with static, interestingly enough. Perhaps the first strange thing that happened was that George Lutz began waking up every morning at around 3.15, which was about the time that Butch DeFeo murdered his family. George had never before woken up that early, and it happened every morning for no apparent reason. I need to pause for a moment. Most fans of horror have read the book or seen the movie The Amityville Horror. The original movie was released in 1979, and there have been remakes, sequels, some of them really terrible. And uh, if you've seen or read those, you're probably familiar with the paranormal phenomena that occurred in the film. 
I want to say there has been tons of controversy regarding the haunting. The children, especially Christopher and then George and Kathy, who now since as of this uh, podcast are deceased, died, have said that the core of the story is indeed true. There were many paranormal events that occurred. Christopher, the son, has said that his father, George, did embellish some of the events for the books, uh, the book and the movies, hoping to make some money, but he said the core of it really did happen. It's not just a big hoax. All right, so in addition to George waking up at 3.15, here are the phenomena that are generally accepted by the family and by investigators to truly have occurred. And the timeline is a little confusing. It seemed very hectic. All right, so the daughter Missy had an imaginary friend called Jody, who appeared to her at times as a girl, other times as, as a small pig, and other times as a giant pig. And pigs, by the way, you might know, are associated with satanic and demonic activity since Old Testament times. Kathy, the mother, levitated above the bed, another poltergeist, uh, uh, another commonality in poster, poltergeist cases. She was left with painful welts on her chest after the levitation. The children levitated as well. You might think, why all the levitation in these poltergeist cases? Some researchers speculate that poltergeists use levitation because it, it defies natural law, and it's uncanny, so it makes us really scared to witness, and it also is kind of bragging about their control over the laws of nature. That's just a theory. Another event, Kathy's face suddenly became very old and grotesque as George watched, then changed back to her normal self. Uh, shadow forms were seen around the house. Some dis disembodied voices were heard. The smell of sulfur permeated the house at times. Remember that this is a very common sign of a demonic presence, the smell of sulfur. They heard the sounds of pigs snorting from around them, which again is a sign of demonic activity. Black slime or goop would come out of faucets and would appear on some keyholes and on some walls. That's the idea behind the, if you saw the movie, there was that slime you know, pouring out of the walls. That didn't really happen. But they said there was some, this weird black sludge that appeared in different places. A pig's face with glowing red eyes looked in through a window at night and scared the hell out of the parents. Again, the pig motif. Contrarily, a large pig's face with glowing red eyes looked down out of an upstairs window at George and his son Daniel while they were out in the yard. There were random cold spots throughout the house, a common theme with poltergeists. You might think, all right, a house built in 1927, a large house in New York, of course there are going to be cold spots. Fair enough, but when we talk about cold spots in hauntings, what we're referring to is cold spots that have no explanation, that suddenly appear out of nowhere, and that are extremely cold, well below what could be explained by uh, weather or by air conditioning. The son Christopher, possibly some other children of his siblings, was thrown against the stairs violently. To this day, he swears that happened. Knives were knocked across the kitchen by an invisible force. Kathy's sewing room upstairs had a bad po uh, problem with swarms of flies, house flies. According to the children, there were not as many flies as there are in the movie, but the room, they said, did indeed have an unusually large number of flies that had a problem. And flies, of course, are also a sign of demonic activity. The Bible uses the name Beelzebub to refer to Satan, uh, and in Hebrew lore, it refers to just a major demon. And that word Beelzebub, it's not a Hebrew word. It comes from one of the other languages around them uh, geographically. And one of the things it refers to is the name the Lord of the Flies, when well, that's one of the, the meanings. And the word Beelzebub even sounds like flies buzzing around, right? So Lord of the Flies is one of the names of Satan. 
flies are dirty, you know, filthy. They, they land on animal dung and so forth, so they're considered like a symbol of Satan. Uh, another thing, a window closed on Son Daniel's hand and smashed it, and it didn't close like gravity pulled it. It was slammed shut. A crucifix on the wall turned upside down by itself. There was a terrifying, oppressive atmosphere around the house most times. In fact, the Lutz family only lasted 28 days in the house, less than a month. They said that one horrifying night they experienced something awful. They refused to talk about it. They never have talked about what happened that one night. And it drove them out of the house never to return. They left all of their possessions in the house and just ran. So that part of the movie is actually true. Now, I've told you before that a poltergeist haunting ends in one of three ways. The people leave, an exorcism happens to work, or it just stops for no apparent reason. I've also told you that the average poltergeist haunting lasts two to three months. This one actually fits. <laughs> the other ones in the series have been a lot longer. This one lasted less than a month. They left and it ended. So it's very, very typical. There's tons of controversy surrounding the case, as I mentioned. There were several lawsuits by the Lutzes, according to George, that were not intended to make money, but to maintain their family reputation and to clear their name, since they were accused of many things, including fraud. One lawyer that uh, claimed that he helped the Lutzes to fake the case, he said they made it up over many bottles of wine, but when he said that, he was engaged in a lawsuit against the Lutzes, and they were not his favorite people, so he had motivation to lie about that. The priest, Father Pecoraro, has often said different things here and there, so some people suspect a hoax. That's always possible in a poltergeist case. Of course, I, I'll allow, I admit that. A couple of other strange things around the house that didn't directly involve the Lutzes. There was a small red room in the basement. If you remember the movie, they made a big deal about that, that it was this hidden chamber. And in fact, uh, it was just a small storage closet that was right there, easily seen. Also, the book and the movie claimed that it, uh, the, the, the chamber, the red room, was a place where the indigenous people of the area, the Shinnecock Indians, put their mentally ill and dying people. The truth, again, is just a storage room, and a Shinnecock chief insisted that, that their people have no such place. They don't, you know, corral the, the dying and the mentally ill into a little chamber. So it was just a storage closet. Uh, next, a TV crew was doing a shooting uh, in the house after the Lutzes left, and they indeed ran into an unusually large number of flies. They commented on it. George and Kathy Lutz later took a lie detector test about the incident. The test was given by Chris Gugas, who is a well-known, reliable uh, polygraph test administrator in Los Angeles. He tested them both separately, and they both passed. He said he didn't see any evidence of them lying. Now, I understand that polygraph tests are possible to trick, and that's why they're not admissible in court, but it's difficult to trick them. You have to truly actually believe in your mind that what you're saying is true. You have to be able to control your pulse, your sweat, and so forth. Usually only sociopaths or psychopaths can beat them. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the famous paranormal investigators and demonologists, uh, the Conjuring series of movies was based on their work. They also investigated the house, and they decided that there was paranormal and demonic activity there. Gene Campbell was a photographer who worked with the Warrens, and he set up a camera in 1976, so after they had left that, the Lutzes had left, set up a camera in the house overnight the house was empty just had the camera taking infrared pictures overnight uh in the empty house just kind of like on a uh, on a time timing you know it would take the it would take pictures regularly he caught what is now a very, a very famous paranormal picture that appears to show a boy peeking out from one of the rooms 
Some people believe that the boy resembles John DeFeo, one of the children that Butch killed. Uh, some claim it was actually a picture of Paul Bartz, who is an investigator working with the Warrens. There is, in fact, a photo of Paul Bartz in a kind of a plaid shirt. And in the, in the photo of the boy, the boy's shirt could be interpreted as plaid. It's really hard to see because it's a grainy photo, black and white, infrared, in fact. And he's kind of behind the staircase banister. But uh, I have to say, I mean, I looked at both pictures together. To me, the boy's face does not look like Paul's face at all. Paul was a, a grown man. The, the boy's face does look like a boy. The hair is certainly different. And the height of the boy in the photo, you can tell by the staircase banister, is child height, while Paul, uh, Paul Bartz was a grown man. So to me, it doesn't look like Paul. It all honestly doesn't really look a whole lot like John DeFeo to me either, but uh, it's certainly bizarre and creepy, you know, that photo. Everyone who's lived in the house since the Lutzes has claimed that there's no strange or pa uh, paranormal activity whatsoever. In fact, they've all really enjoyed the house, right? So whatever happened happened only to the Lutzes and only for 28 days, which again is very normal for a poltergeist haunting. That's the Amityville case, friends. What do you think? Was it a real poltergeist haunting? Was it a complete hoax, a fraud? Was it a real haunting that has been embellished over time or embellished for the purpose of a movie or a book? Well, I'll give you my opinion. First, I believe that the events in the book and movie definitely are exaggerated, no doubt about that. Like I said, some of the family have even said that. Yeah, they said it really happened, but it was exaggerated. But I do believe they experienced something that seems to be paranormal. The case has factors that are very common in poltergeist cases. They're the fact that prepubescent people were involved. That's almost always the case with poltergeists. There were disembodied noises and voices, objects moving with no, with no seen means of movement. Uh, the entity in a poltergeist case usually picks on one member of the family. It tended to pick on Kathy most of all, though it did mess with the children too. And it also had elements common to demonic infestations. There's the association with pigs, association with flies, the stench of sulfur, the desecration of religious objects. So, uh, you know, it, it, it bears the traits of a poltergeist haunting. One thing tends to convince me that maybe it was real is that the Lutzes had just purchased their dream house, right? For a, a cheap price. The house was large, nice, in a nice neighborhood. It was on a canal that led to the sea. There was a boathouse, a swimming pool. It was a, a beautiful situation. And only after, after only 28 days, they, they fled in the night and left all their stuff there. Something made them run, you know? So yeah, I can accept that this was a real poltergeist haunting, although certainly embellished in, in some areas. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments, even if you disagree. So what do you think? Could you have lasted 28 days at High Hopes? I'm not sure I could have, have done it. I don't know with all those things going on. So tonight, if you hear pigs grunting and your partner levitates, well, just get the hell out of there. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe. And as always, sleep well if you can.